0: Hi, I'm Aaron Hank, and welcome to Life in the Balance. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of this show's premiere, and in the past 12 months, we've covered topics like teenage depression, the opioid crisis, gun control, and homelessness. You can listen to these episodes online at wypr.org podcastcentral, or wherever you download your podcasts. Our conversations on this show have been inspired by and in service to the people behind policy issues, the people whose lives hang in the balance, you might say. Today, we are revisiting our very first episode, an episode featuring a young man named Danny Miller. There are more than 22,000 people incarcerated in the state of Maryland. Almost 8,000 of those people are from Baltimore City. Until six years ago, Danny Miller was one of them. Our program today is dedicated to Danny's story. We're going to start that story back when he was a teenager, when something happened that turned his life upside down.
1: I mean, be honest, I kind of grew up kind of rough for real. And pretty much like my only friend I hung with was my brother, that's it. I was 14, he was 16. He was murdered. He got shot in his back two times. It's pretty much we're dealing with selling drugs. It was kind of like a little turf war going on. He wasn't a target, to be honest, but she, like they were shooting at somebody else, but he was there, and he so happened to get hit. But the guy they wanted to shoot only got shot in his hand. And my brother got shot in his back twice, then he ended up dying, like, a couple hours later. So, it was like, once that happened, a lot of things changed, like, as far as my focus. Before that, I went to school a lot. I never saw a bad grade. I rarely got in fights. You know, I always stayed to myself. Like, once that, I had my stop going to school, started being in the street a lot more, selling drugs and hanging with the wrong crowd. And and once that started happening, I just started experiencing going to juvenile facilities, and from there I went to jail, and from jail I went to prison. I mean, it pretty much shaped the mood, everything that's going on today. day. I had a homeboy I mean it sounds crazy though know, He was my best friend for real. Like we just we just started bumping heads I mean like it was It same petty Like girls like I had a girlfriend And like she's always come to me like Man you did this, you did that And she kept knowing everything that I did And kind of found out It was him going back telling him everything Just telling him everything After that every little thing he did I bottled it up Instead of acting out, I just kept like just holding like, that, holding that, holding that hold And then one day it was on his birthday I had a girl with me, had a girl with him And I was like, man, I'm going to get rid of the, my girlfriend Get rid of yours, we're going to hang out together Without the girls So I ended up getting rid of my girlfriend But he, he still had his girl with him So I'm like, man, look, man, you got her with you I, ain't, I don't want to hang with you It was something so small like that And we got into a big argument We got into a little fight it wasn't nothing big. We always fought and shook hands right after we finished fighting. But this particular day, you know, we were just drinking a little bit. And he just kept on calling me the B-word. Like, man, you. And I was like, man, call me another one. And he called me another one. And we started fighting. I had a knife on me. And I just swung it. Like you know, I ain't aiming on nothing. I just swung the knife. And I walked off. Like, it ain't really hit me. And then somebody, like, man, he died. So once they said he died, that's when it hit me to bed in his house every day I called his mother mother you know yeah and he and I died something was so small like that like we wasn't no it wasn't we wasn't enemies it wasn't no nothing we just just had a normal fight that we always have We was drinking and I had a knife on me, you know and I, I don't I don't know why I did it but I did it Danny Miller sharing the story of a fight that turned
0: into a murder, a murder that would land him behind bars. We're going to hear more of Danny's story as this hour progresses. He'll tell us about those years he spent in prison and he'll tell us about what life has been like since he got out. This is Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin and listening to Danny's story along with us is Carl Alexander. He is founder and director of the Thurgood Marshall Alliance uh, that is a group that provides technical support to schools in Baltimore that are committed to socioeconomic and racial diversity. He is also the John Dewey Professor Emeritus of Sociology, having retired from Johns Hopkins University back in 2014. For 25 years, Mr. Alexander followed the lives of 790 kids growing up in Baltimore neighborhoods. A lot of them ended up in prison. Mr. Alexander turned those years of study into a book. It's called The Long Shadow, Family Background, Disadvantaged Urban Youth, and the Transition to Adulthood. And Mr. Alexander, thank you for being with us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Tell me what you hear in Danny's story. Are there things in this story that sound familiar to you from your own research?
2: Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, It's hard to know where to start. I feel like I know Danny, and I just heard a brief clip of uh, the story uh, that he's got to share with us. And good for him for sharing it. That's very courageous for him to do. You mentioned the book, The Long Shadow, and there were many Dannys covered in that book. Um, what comes immediately to mind is a, is a little story that's included to illustrate the challenges that many of these young people face as they, as they grow up in difficult circumstances, much like Dannys. Uh, in the book, we refer to this fellow as Chris, also African-American. Uh, he also witnesses brother being killed in their house when the house was invaded by thugs over a drug deal that went bad. And what Chris told us, he recounted the story when he was a young adult, probably age 26 or so. This happened when he was 12, 13. And he said that uh, this is, I can't remember, it's ex- not an exact quote, it's in the book, but he said, uh, it's a hurting feeling when you lose someone that close. And as a result of her, his experience of this kind of violent trauma, he found it difficult to go back to school because he didn't want to see people. He didn't want to have people at school see him cry, and he would cry every time he thought about his brother. Can you imagine, you know, being young and impressionable and having lived through that, and then kind of get on with your life?
0: Let me ask you to talk more about that idea of trauma. Um, what that word means in terms of how it can psychologically and emotionally impact a kid uh, like Danny or like Chris, who you were just talking about when it's experienced on a regular basis and over a, a period of time.
2: Yeah, and sadly for many of the young people growing up in Baltimore, that's their reality. It's not just a one-time experience. Yeah, you know, Witnessing a loved one murdered uh, right before your eyes is probably the most extreme that you can imagine, but these young people are exposed to traumatic experiences, I won't say daily, but often in their lives. You know, It's a world that middle-class children growing up in the surrounding communities just don't know, and thankfully they don't, but too many of our our inner-city children experience it. Um, We know from a broader research literature that the experience of violence at the neighborhood level, not even necessarily personal violence, spills over into the schools. There's a really remarkable study that was published some years back that demonstrates that in the neighborhood surrounding a school, If there's a murder that occurs within two weeks of standardized achievement testing, test scores plummet. So there's also a kind of a contextual reality to this. It's not just the up close and personal experiences of individuals like Danny, although that's certainly a large part of it. But there's also what happens outside the house, in the neighborhood, exposure to violence and criminal activity.
0: I want to turn our attention now back to Danny Miller's story, um, share another part of his story. It turns out his brother's murder was not actually Danny's first experience with gun violence. Uh, it did ironically uh, have to do with his brother, though.
1: Like before, um, all this happened, I got, I got shot by my brother because he had a gun. I'm, like, I'm, I was at my mother's house, and he called me like, come home. I was like, why? Like, I got a gun, man, come home. I'm like, All right. And I came home. So, like, it was like the excitement of having a gun. We kept playing with the gun, playing with it. And, you know, around this time, I didn't know about if you pull it back, one go in the chamber. So, I took the clip out. I took all the bullets out of the clip. And I laid them on the bed and I put the clip back inside the gun. Then my brother picked the gun out. And I'm like, man, you took the bullets out? i like, yeah. And he started playing with it and he just pointed at me and just pulled the trigger. Where did it hit you? It went in my face right here. And it came up the back of my neck. It came up back in the back of my neck. I was 13 when it happened. It was January, 97, when it happened, matter of fact. And he ended up getting killed October 97. The same year. Carl Alexander,
0: just how common or uncommon is a story like this? And how does this speak to what you know from your research about the saturation of guns and gun violence in the city?
2: So, of course, every situation is unique, and Danny's reality isn't necessarily the reality of what was experienced by young people living on the same block. But when you step back and you look at it collectively, this is all this is all too common, exposure to violence and being victimized by violence. The study of ours that played out over a 25-year period, we were very successful in monitoring the progress of these youngsters as they grew up and go on with their lives, at age 28, 29, we identified and re-interviewed 80% of the original group. We couldn't arrange interviews with roughly 167. <laughs> That's a very precise number because it's in my head. And that was a disappointment to us. But as we as we researched it and tried to understand why we're experiencing so much challenge in in getting back together with them, we, we discovered that 28 of them were deceased. So that more than 20% of the young people whose lives we were part of since they were six years old more than 20 percent of them that we couldn't interview as young adults were no longer with us and that's gives you a sense of the challenges and the risks of growing up in dangerous neighborhoods and unstable families in places like baltimore now you have to be careful not with, to paint with too broad a brush because not everyone falls subject to victimization Lots of these young people have proved to be very resilient and hardy and, and have managed to overcome uh, many of these challenges and move on to comfortable, successful lives. But too many of them stumble along the way and experiences experience these kinds of difficulties.
0: When somebody does stumble, is that the end of the line for them? How can you begin to undo the kind of corrosive effect of that kind of sustained trauma?
2: I think that we've got some useful ideas along those lines that are actually embedded in life histories that we or tried to organize in the book The Long Shadow. One of the interesting uh, facets of what we were able to do is that we were able to compare the experiences of poor white young, youngsters growing up in Baltimore against those of poor African-American youngsters. There are lots of poor whites in Baltimore City and in places like Baltimore City, but they're often off the map when you start thinking about urban disadvantage because we tend to think of that in racial terms and families of color. But what we discovered as we, as we looked into this and with the experience of these young people is that the, um, the low-income whites, the poor white men in particular that were included in our study, they got in trouble too, just as, as did the African-American. The, Afri- the arrest and incar- incarceration percentages for African-Americans was roughly 65, 60%, African-American men. For poor white men, it was in the order of 50 55%. So, you know, both too high. The poor whites, when we asked about problem behaviors, they told us that they did lots of things that their parents and we would not want them to do. They actually had higher rates of drug use, marijuana use, uh, binge drinking than, than the poor African-American men. These guys were not saints. But what we discovered, despite all that, was that as young adults, the poor whites had much greater access to stable employment and uh, that paid a de- decent wage. And... They were working substantially, 45% of them, a remarkable statistic, in the, rem- in the remnants of Baltimore's old industrial uh, and craft economy. So they were electricians, they were plumbers, they were auto mechanics. They did that kind of work with their hands. African-American men of like background growing up in very similar circumstances, very few of them were employed in that sector of the economy. And so these guys, the white guys, were actually well-positioned to live a comfortable life and to follow a path that would keep them out of trouble, whereas African-American men didn't have those opportunities. Uh, In the book, we talk about two success narratives. Doing well in school is the way to move up. And uh, of course, middle-class parents hold that out for their children, as do low-income parents. But only about 4% of the low-income folks that were included in our study completed college. And so not many of them were able to follow that path. The alternative is to find good, steady employment that pays well and allows you to live comfortably and support a family. And that's where we saw these huge racial disparities, uh, which favored working-class whites over working-class African-Americans. And I think the lesson in that is to help expand employment opportunities for poor blacks to allow them to kind of get on with their lives and, and recover from how they might have stumbled along the way. I mean, so these lower income whites, as young young people, uh, did a lot of things that could have followed them for the rest of their lives, but they were able to get beyond it because they were given an opportunity to get a decent job. and And these employment opportunities opened up early. We think it's a story about social networks and social isolation. So a lot of these young white men, while they were in high school, they were helping out an uncle, a neighbor, someone from the church, getting good work experience, someone who would who would vouch for them when they went off and looked for a job and they were building up a skill set, African-American men didn't have access to those social resources. And so when the time came to try to get back on track after, spending a, you know, after maybe being locked up for a while, African-American men didn't have any place to go. The young white men did. And that made a tr- tremendous difference in their opportunities and well-being as young adults. So I think starting early, sure. And there are things we can do to help young men like Danny get a second chance and most of them and probably Danny as well are eager to have a second chance and to be able to take advantage of those opportunities we need to help open some doors for them because the people who care most about them and are closest to them don't have the wherewithal to do that for their children and for their family and so someone if we care about them somehow some way we have to step in and help open those doors
0: Carl Alexander is a professor emeritus of sociology at Johns Hopkins University and author of The Long Shadow, Family Background, Disadvantaged Urban Youth, and the Transition to Adulthood. And uh, Carl Alexander, thank you for your perspective. It's my pleasure. I'm Aaron Henkin, and you're listening to Life in the Balance. Coming up, the next chapter of Danny Miller's story, his struggle to keep sane in the face of a 30-year prison sentence. We'll also be joined by a local business owner who makes it a point to hire former inmates because he's one himself. We'll be right back. I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance, a radio program where we dedicate each episode to understanding one person's story and explaining the issues social, economic and political that have shaped that story for better or worse. This hour, that story belongs to Danny Miller. Danny grew up in Baltimore, as we heard in the last segment of our program, in a neighborhood saturated with drugs and guns. He was accidentally shot by his brother when he was 13, and later that same year, he witnessed that same brother get murdered by crossfire in a drug-related shooting. We heard Danny tell about the emotional toll his brother's murder took on him and about how when he was 17, he ended up getting into a drunken fight with a friend, a petty fight, but one that escalated fast. Danny pulled a knife and took an impulsive swing. It was a split-second decision with irreversible consequences. Danny's friend died, and Danny ended up in front of a judge.
1: I, I knew I was guilty, and I knew I couldn't beat the charge. So I was I was, I was, was 17 at the time. So you know a lot of older guys, like, man, if you get 10 years, you can do like 5 years on 10, you still young, you'll be home by the time you're 22 and all that. So I started looking for a deal, but it didn't go that way, and they gave me thirty years, you know. And I just, I when I had me, I felt like everything was just over with. But I mean, I had to deal with it, you know. Like I'm here now. There's nothing you can do, you know. in crying about it, you just gotta deal with it. And from this time, I had about thirteen months in. So I was kind of adjusted To being in jail But not not. I mean you can never really fully adjust yourself But I was kind of adjusted to it And I always just had in my head Like man I'm going to come home And the power defender She told you don't worry about it In, in three years just get your GED And we're going to come back to court And they're going to take it back So that, that always just stayed in my head So I always had hope she like, man, because she put her on um, something called a modification, but I ended up going with my modification, and they denied it, so that's when the reality really hit me, like, man, you got to do this time. See, so I pretty much got adjusted for the fact that, I mean, you you around a bunch of men that got all kind of charges, you got people that prey on people, so... I couldn't really show that side Like you can't really show a sign of weakness in prison Because people would prey on it So even though I felt messed up on the inside I never showed it So eventually I just like got it I got used to it I got used to Oh breakfast gonna come this time We gonna eat lunch this time I got used to Oh the jail gonna get locked down You You can't get visits So it's like Every day I got to the same routines I was adjusted to it I mean, after a while, you, you don't have a choice You end up killing yourself in there, I'm telling you I have seen people kill themselves Like from like not like getting adjusted to it It will sent you crazy I mean, it sent me crazy a little bit Like I started taking medicine I started getting anxiety real bad Depression So I started taking all kind of depression pills And anxiety pills pills for insomnia, like things like that. Danny Miller
0: sharing his state of mind as he adjusted to the reality of a 30-year prison sentence. Danny's story is the inspiration for and the anchor of our conversation this hour on Life in the Balance. And listening to Danny's story along with us right now is a man by the name of Chris Wilson. Chris is a Baltimore-based social entrepreneur and founder of a number of local businesses, including the Barclay Investment Corporation, uh, specializing in residential and commercial contracting work. He makes it a point to hire former inmates because he knows what they're up against. Chris actually knows Danny. They met uh, in prison while they were both incarcerated. Chris, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So now we're at this point in Danny's story, right, where he's really facing up to the years he's got ahead of him behind bars and the psychological struggles, right, that that come with that.
3: Can you relate to this? Help us understand what it's like to be in Danny's shoes at this point. I definitely can relate to it. Um, It's important to understand um, going to prison is the equivalent of being teleported. To like, another planet. It's different rules. Just you know, it's, it's stuff that you have to adjust to, and it's very hard, especially when you're young and you're used to, you know, being free. And you're in this new environment where, you know, the rules are different. There are people uh, inside who are probably never get out. Um, you have prison guards who treat you a certain kind of way. Um, lack of freedom, lack of privacy. And so it takes some, uh, some very uh, thoughtful soul-searching to get your mind right to survive it. And so I definitely I definitely relate to um, his experience.
0: So you met Danny Miller while yes. you guys were both in prison. Tell me that story, how you got to know him, what kind of a guy he was when you met him.
3: I think that the point when I met Danny, I was already in prison perhaps for about seven or eight years. He came in, I was a little older than Danny, um, came in pretty quiet. And at this point in my incarceration, I had become a mentor. I had discovered after um, one or two years in prison that my path to um, rehabilitate myself was through education and so I was going to school I got my high school diploma I got my college degree and I started mentoring and I realized that you know education is is a valuable tool especially for young people when they come into prison it's like focus on your education Um, it just changes you mentally and so I noticed Danny a person real quiet stayed to himself and he had very good work ethic he would get up in the morning with work and so we just became friends, and we would just talk and, and share our ideas, and just we just stay friends for a while. I think we, we spent probably about um, maybe six to seven years together in, in prison.
0: Chris, tell me a little bit more about your own story, your sentence, your years behind bars, and a little bit more about that um, work you did in approaching the years that you had to serve and how you made the most
3: of them. Right. Well, like Danny, uh, my charge actually happened— think in a split second, you know, I was 17 uh, when I caught my charge. Some older guys were following me. They surrounded me, threatening me, um, and I just overreacted. At the, at the time, I was losing a lot of friends to gun violence. Um, I'd seen a lot of stuff, um, a lot of gun violence, and l- lost a lot of people growing up. And so I overreacted and pulled my um, pulled my weapon that I was carrying at the time, and I ended up taking a person's life. Unlike Danny, I was sentenced to natural life in prison. And so I went in with not much hope at all of ever getting out and also fell into a deep depression for about a year. I just wasn't sure how I would get out. Um, Along this this, uh, time period of a year, I also had to do a lot of soul searching about who I was as a person, what led me here. Um, I knew that I was a good person. It was like, how do I prove? How do I prove that to myself and to other people? And I figured it was through education. I was always very studious growing up. Um, I played competitive chess. Um, used to read a lot of books. And I said, well, now I have time to do all these things. So how about I explore? You know, this this, this side of myself and just try to further my education. And so that's what I started doing. Chris, I want to keep
0: your experiences and your comments in mind as we turn back to Danny's story now as we're going to hear uh, Danny came around to being uh, as productive as he could uh, under the circumstances and uh, with the resources at hand.
1: Some guys, when they go in, you know, they get in gangs or they start hanging with certain crowds. But somehow I always got, like, more attached to you the know, older guys. And they always schooled me, like, man, you can go to college and here, like, things like that. So... I got my GED in prison. Like any kind of program I was able to get into for school, I did it. I got two trades. I took horticulture. I took um, sheet metal. I took computer repair, but I didn't pass the certification. And I took 5-optic cabling, but I didn't pass the certification. Um, I did college. I got 18 credits because they had like a program with Ann Community College. I got 18 credits, but I didn't finish that. I didn't finish. But I always like utilized all the good programs, like whatever they had, like um, Anger Management, Life Skills, NA, AA, Victims Impact. Just whatever program they had, I, I just did it. Because it also helped you get past the time, help you get off the tear, help you get out with yourself a little bit, but at the same time, you learn. I had a lot of hope, you know, because I was in contact with, with certain of the guys that got released. And you know I asked I'm like, man, how was it to get to get a job which how you do that? like I asked questions, so I was kind of i had a lot of hope before I came home you know I, had, I i was dealing with this female I met her while I was there at the jail. she was a she was a dental assistant, so I already knew that when I' had to get out, I got a stable spot to, to live, and she was a good girl wait wait a second i got I gotta
0: interrupt you here. You met, you met the girl, she was a dental assistant like while you were incarcerated? Yeah. Yeah, so she came and work on guys' teeth.
1: Yeah, and you guys hit it off. Yeah, she, yeah, she was the um dental assistant, so. <laughs> I mean, they're still regular people. You know, they don't, they don't like somebody. I mean, but if I was a dental assistant, I had got a job. I was a sanitation guy up there in um, the infirmary. So every day I went there to clean the floors and get their trash. And we just always had a little small talk. Like, how you doing today? It, it started from that. But I was quiet. I was I was real quiet. And she and she like, man, I, I was different from everybody. You're tuned to Life
0: in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. We're listening to Danny Miller's story this hour. And here with me in studio is Chris Wilson. Chris is a Baltimore-based social entrepreneur and founder of a number of local businesses. Chris makes it a point to hire former inmates because he is one himself. He met Danny while they were incarcerated. And Chris, we just heard Danny talking about um, how he made use of the work and educational opportunities that were available in prison. We heard him tell this improbable story of meeting a girl, a sweetheart that he hit it off with. And, you know, as he gets closer to his release date, we hear this word hope from him over And over help put us inside the mind of a guy who's coming up on that release date and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel
3: how real is that feeling of hope and how realistic is it well hope is is definitely very very important especially for folks serving time being in prison kind of keeps you like in a holding pattern and, and people in the outside world like things are just evolving technology and it's important to stay up on things that's going going on in the outside world But you also have to make use of the um, resources in school and and therapy and stuff that's available on the inside so that you're prepared to go out. Um, But the hope is is definitely important because we often hear the stories about how easy it is for people to come back to prison, the recidivism rate, definitely how hard it is to find a job. Um, We see gun violence, drugs, everything on the news every day. So we know what we're going back into and. Everyone says they don't want to come back to prison, but the key is, how do you equip yourself and educate yourself in a way where you won't come back? And so we're always very like anxious about that experience coming out. I mean, I was, I was anxious myself. It's scary, actually.
0: In a little bit, we are going to hear Danny talk about how things have gone for him since he's been released. And uh, the reality is it's been a bumpy road. You were a mentor Mm -hmm. to Danny when you guys were in prison. I know for a fact that you remain a mentor to him. Um, Let me ask you what kind of advice you give to Danny these days uh, and other guys that are in his shoes for creating a stable life, a purposeful life after incarceration.
3: So I give Danny a lot of advice on 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 a bunch of things, but one of the things I emphasize to him every single time I'm around him is that he has to surround himself with good people. Now... The, the neighborhood that Danny lives in is a tough neighborhood. So it's one of the toughest neighborhoods in Baltimore City. Um, you know, people deal drugs right in front of his building on his stoop. Like you can't avoid it in this neighborhood. That's one of the challenges for him. It's like he surrounds himself with like some of his family members, and it's how do you tell your family like, oh, I can't like hang around you, but at the same time, you have people in your family that that may like abuse drugs or just like have like the bad bad elements around them, and and I tell them all the time that you ha- you have to step outside of what you're used to, which is being around folks like that that's that's doing drugs or whatever. Because Danny's a good dude. Danny gets up, he like, has great work ethic. He wants the, he wants the best things for his life, um, for his for his son. Surround yourself with people that's amazing, and then you'll you'll um have a better a better experience in life. That's one of the things I tell them all the time.
0: Chris Wilson social entrepreneur here in Baltimore. Thank you for being with us, and thanks for sharing your perspective. Thanks for having me. I'm Aaron Henkin, and you are listening to Life in the Balance. Coming up, being released from the penitentiary doesn't get Danny very far. He ends up taking a job that has him sitting in the prison parking lot every day before work. Stay with us. I'm Aaron Hankin. this is Life in the Balance. And on the program today, we've been following the story of Danny Miller. Danny was a teenager when he was sentenced to 30 years in prison for second degree murder. And we're gonna pick up his story now, 10 years into that sentence, when Danny learns that a decision has been made, he's being released early on parole. After a decade in prison, he finds himself walking out of the gates.
1: I mean, it felt unreal when, that. Like, when I walked out of prison, gate, it felt unreal. I went straight to the check cashing store because I started saving my money. Like my last 18 months, whenever I got money orders, I saved them. I saved them. I didn't spend it. So when I came home, I came home to like almost $3,000. But when you get out, they give you um, a $500 check. They give you $50 cash. It's your own money though that you um, accumulate while you're in there. If you save money, I was I started saving my money. But everybody get $50 before you, when you get out. Everybody get that. So I had got fifty dollars cash, and they gave me a five hundred dollar check, and the rest get mailed to you. You know, go through the state. So I went straight to check and store, like go and see a few family members, and then the very next they put me on the um on GPS. So I had a curfew from seven to seven. I Had a little bracelet on on my leg, so it was like certain certain. I still was like under their control because of the GPS thing. Like if you it, it it tell them exactly where you at. So I had to stay away from certain neighborhoods. So I pretty much I just I stayed in the house a lot. And I was just looking for a job the whole time. Like I ain't I didn't come and just like yeah I'm a, like I ain't like party or nothing. I just came home and, and really just chilled out. I was my main focus was like I want a, a a good job and just and just build from there, you know. Like I ain't come home and run to the street or ran to my old friends like nobody really knew I was home. It felt funny. Like, I can get up now and open the refrigerator If it, it just felt funny. Using the toilet and you can shut the door and put the toilet seat down. And everything. I was like, I felt amazed by, it. like, yeah, everything. I mean, to be honest with you, I got a lot of interviews. And I think it's, I think because of my name, Danny Miller. My name. I'm, I'm, it's not it's your like a white name. <laughs> I'm telling the truth, right? 'Cause Because I got a lot of interviews. Like whenever I put an application in, I got interviewed but once I got there, I'm going to call you back. And I never got a job. Or, like, that background, that's serious. Like, whenever they did a background check on me, that was it. I mean, I went to parole and probation one day, and this guy, he was complaining, like, man, I hate my job. He was just like, I hate it. And I'm like, man, he, he, he got a GPS thing on too. you, so I said, excuse me, where you work at? And he told me, like, man, I work for Waste Management. He's like, man, go there, they gonna hire you. I'm telling you, they gonna hire you, they hire anybody. And he was right. Like, I went there, and that very same day, they showed me a video, and that next day I was working. My third week, it was only 9.25 hours, but it was hard because it wasn't on the bus line. So every morning, I had to be to work at one o'clock. My girlfriend had to go to work at eight, and she still worked at the jail and waste management was around the corner from the jail so every morning I would get in the car with her and she would drive to the jail walk in the parking lot and I'd sit in the car all the lunch break her lunch break be at 12.30 then she'd come out and take me to work I'd go to work then she'd get off at 4 go all the way home I got off at 9.30 and then she'd come all back to get me this is my my everyday routine it was kind of it was hard, though, because I was spending hours, so much money on gas because you had to go to Jessup, go home, go to Jessup, go home. like, And I think it was about, like, 35 miles going, 35 miles coming. And like I said, man, my, my day, I, I had to really go up, get up 8 o'clock in the morning and sit in the car all the way until 12.30. I had my little blanket, and I had a laptop, and I'd be right in the parking lot out of the jail. But that was the only way I can get to work. It wasn't no bus line, you know. Danny
0: Miller, sharing his story, a story that finds him out of prison after serving 10 years, but back in that same prison's parking lot, killing time before he works his shift at a sanitation job. Listening to Danny's story along with us now is Karen Stokes. Karen is the CEO of Strong City Baltimore. She was also the first person to hire Chris Wilson, who we heard from in our last segment of our program, after he was released from prison. Karen, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. And uh, before we address what we just heard in Danny's story, let me have you talk a bit about Strong City Baltimore, what it is, the work you do there, and uh, the perspective, perhaps, that you're bringing to our discussion today.
4: Strong City Baltimore is a 48-year-old organization, so we've been around for a long time. Formerly, we were called the Greater Homewood Community Corporation. About a year and a half ago, we changed our name because we really have been citywide for over a decade. Our mission is really broad. It is building and strengthening neighborhoods and people. So we have a very broad mission and a very holistic approach to what that means for us in terms of how do we really improve neighborhoods in Baltimore and the people who are living in them.
0: I want to ask you to uh, talk about options or the lack thereof uh, at this point that we're hearing in Danny's story Uh, employment options, transportation options, and just how vulnerable someone can be when they're in a situation like Danny's.
4: So, transportation remains a huge hurdle for certainly uh, less resourced folks who are really very dependent on public transportation. So, in listening to his story, we know that that becomes a constant struggle for everybody. In the work that we do, uh, we run an adult learning center uh, around the city, and people just getting to be able to take a class in preparing for their GED is amazing that people will sometimes work you know, two jobs during the day and still try to make, t- make it to their class. Uh, transportation is a very big issue.
0: I'm going to turn our attention back to Danny's story for another few minutes. We're going to hear a little bit now about that sanitation job he was talking about that he got, what that work was
1: like and where he's gone from there. We worked on a um, a conveyor belt and a bunch of trash. They come through at a high speed and they might have you on aluminum, they might have you on plastic, they might have you on cardboard, like whatever they have you on. If I'm on aluminum, it's a a, a, like I said, a conveyor belt real fast. You you just (laughs) snatch all the aluminum like this, like nonstop. Like when I walk in the door, as soon as I get to my workstation, I walk up and like this, nonstop, and then the supervisors they was they was on your back like real hard, like man, you're not going fast enough. It's like was never you were, you could never satisfy them. Like the turnaround rate was so high, and it was many guys that came on from jail, you know, and I lasted thirteen months, and I don't know how I did it because I. It was hard. I used to come home. Had a soaking absinthe salt. I got patches all on my back. been Gay, and it's like once um, I end up getting, I end up losing that job. And since I lost that job, I ain't bounced back yet. Yet <laughs> to this day, right now, well, I live, I live on not too far from here on Pennsylvania Avenue and Martin Luther King Boulevard with another, with another girl. I work for a temp agency, but it's not everyday work, and sometimes I might get a job. And, um, the pay rate ranges from about 875. The most I made was 14, but I only, only made 14 one time, and that job lasted two days. But for the most part, I mainly get jobs at about 950 to the hour, mainly hard labor. The temp agency like one of the easiest spots to get a job at when you got a background. Like this week right here, I ain't work this week at all You gotta be there at 5, 3 in the morning And sometimes you'll go there at 5, 3 in the morning And just sit And won't get sent out and you gotta do it every day And if you don't go And when when jobs do come, they won't pick you It's like a, a lose-lose Like if I don't go And they don't see my face every day When when jobs come, they won't pick me But if I go there and I sit there at 5, 3 in the morning All way till 11, 12 o'clock I could be out looking for another job or something. You see what I'm saying? So, so I get up in the morning. I have my, my steel toe boots on, my work vest, my work hat. And I walk out, and I go there. You sit there, no work. So, my way, I'm like, dang, man. So, I be coming back home. And I be so like, dang, I go ahead and tell my girl I ain't getting no, get no work today. It's like embarrassing. You know? And I see people like, man, you just getting no work. And I'm like, man, I to, you just don't know, <laughs> you feel me? Because so, when people see me, they think I go to work every day. But I, I do go to work every day, but I don't, work, I don't work every day, you know?
0: Danny Miller, sharing his story here on Life in the Balance, and listening to that story along with us is Karen Stokes of Strong City, Baltimore. Karen, some people might hear Danny's story and they might say, eh, that's poetic justice, serves him right, he did the crime, he deserves whatever hardship. He has had to endure in prison or after employers have the choice to hire whoever they want to hire. When it comes down to the choice between a guy who's got a criminal record and a guy who doesn't, that's the employer's prerogative, right? What do you you say to an argument like that?
4: Well, of course, people do have a prerogative. And there's another element of that is what else is part of your mission in terms of your work either as a for-profit or a non-profit employer? And I think there's an element here of, yeah, people do the time, and then it's done. And how do we, because it's, it's in society's best interest, in our city's best interest, if we can find a way of, of when people are returning citizens, that they are, in fact, returning to a community that is going to give them a second chance.
0: You talk the talk. You also walk the walk. Uh, I mentioned before you hired uh, the guest we heard in our last segment, Chris. Uh, Talk about Chris. Talk about uh, meeting him and your decision to hire him.
4: Well, the interesting thing about Chris is sort of how we do work in Baltimore. So I had a job opening, um, and it was for a work for somebody to do some community organizing and workforce, connecting in the community in the Barclay neighborhood. And I really wanted somebody from the community. So being a good Baltimorean, what do I do? I call people I know and say, who do you have? So I called um, the University of Baltimore, the Community Studies uh, Department, and there's a woman there named a professor, Betsy Nix, who I knew well, and I said, Betsy, who's your rising star at UB? And she said, well, there's this guy who's taking classes here. He's great. His name is Chris Wilson. Maybe you want to interview him. And I said, sure, that's great. And then she was very cautious. She said, well, you should know he's done a little bit. Of t- he's done some time. And I said, Perfect. I actually, it would probably be better for me to have someone with that experience who's going to be working in this neighborhood with folks who we're trying to really connect to. Now, I said that in a very cavalier way, sure, perfect, not really knowing anything about Chris or even knowing what kind of time did he serve. So in some ways, perhaps I was a little naive to begin with, but I also understood that we as an organization have an obligation. The people in our neighborhoods that are there who are looking for jobs and they see buildings coming up on, say, Greenmount Avenue and 23rd Street, they are showing up at worksite saying, I need a job. So for me, it was in our self-interest as an organization to have a person out there talking to people. Because what we were trying to do is getting people out of the drug trade and into some kind of work situation. So that was how I was introduced to Chris to begin with.
0: Talk to me about networks and about mm-hmm. that part, that link in the chain. How you find your way, found your way to him. I mean, what, it seems to me one of the differences between Chris, who you hired, and Danny, who's going through the struggles he's going through, it has to do with a network of social and professional contacts.
4: Absolutely, and I think that is something we need to get, we need to figure out in Baltimore. Is like, how do we create that network? When you go to prison. Um, particularly if you've served a long period of time or if if you've done two offenses in there, when you come out, your family is not even necessarily available to you. And some of the friends that you had may not be the people you want to associate with. How do we, in fact, create a network, a mentoring network? And And I think it has to be a network because I think it's too much, in some ways, to ask an individual to be the mentor for someone coming out of prison. And why is that? Because there are so many things this person needs. They need housing. They need to figure out how to negotiate the medical, the healthcare system. They need to figure out how to even get those construction boots that he talks about. Like How do you even dress for work? You need someone who might, if you're a woman or even a man, you might need to deal with daycare. So what we really, what I think is important is if we could create small networks of people, individuals around to surround somebody, a returning citizen, we might be able to help them get where they need to go. Chris had that network. Chris is a very charismatic, well-educated, He educated himself um, when he was in prison. He came out and he was on fire to like make... You know, change his life. And people at University of Baltimore recognize that. So I connected to them. Once Chris was in my orbit and in my organization, I now am invested in him. I want him to be a success. So therefore, whatever it's going to take for me to help Chris be successful, he started out part-time. He was very clear to me, I need healthcare. So the moment I could hire him full-time so I can get him on, to get benefits, I did that. So that first foot in the door is really important.
0: Karen Stokes from Strong City, Baltimore, talking about uh, networking among other things. Um, Karen, work needs to be done in that area, as you say. You do have some programs that you are affiliated with at Strong City, yeah, you know, that you sponsor, that you invest in, that are helping people like Danny find steady employment, though.
4: Yeah, and we're 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 trying to figure it out ourselves because a lot of this is new for us as an organization. Uh, we do have an adult learning center, so. Uh, we have 600 learners that come our way. We want to make sure that we provide that kind of network. If someone needs something, we have a learner advocacy program uh, where we have a one-on-one mentoring program for people who are taking that step to get get their GED. In addition, we run uh, the VISTA program, and we kind of experimented a few years ago with this. VISTAs are volunteers in service to America. They are doing a year of national service. Um, we had a cohort of VISTAs that came to us in the summer of 2015. And we were thinking, wouldn't this be an interesting approach? You're coming out of prison. What you really need is to build your resume and doing some national service, putting time in. Now, you're not going to get a lot of money. You're basically making poverty wages. And at the end, you get an education stipend. So um, you will get like $5,500 at the end of your year of national service. We were exploring as an organization of can we seek out returning citizens to become VISTAs? For us, we saw it as a real win-win. You come out of prison, you're really giving back in many ways. But you're also beginning to develop that network that we're talking about. and your first your resume is is starting, right? you're going you're going to develop um some real job skills and you're going to be contributing back to the community in terms of re- you know reducing poverty. Some of the challenges, when we first did it, we were like, "Oh, this should be easy. Well, it wasn't. People have to get through a criminal background check. We could not hire anybody through the VISTA program that had a convicted murder rate, for you know, murder conviction. Or we could not have anyone who found themselves on the um, sex offender, national sex offender registry. But everybody else you could. So if you had done drugs or there are other kinds of offenses that you might have had but it's very difficult. That's one way that we were trying to be open as an organization to how can we, whenever we can, hire somebody who is a returning citizen if they meet all the other skills that we're looking for.
0: Karen Stokes, CEO of Strong City Baltimore. Karen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to the debut episode of Life in the Balance, a new radio show here on WYPR where we'll dedicate each episode to understanding one person's story and exploring the issues, social, economic, and political, that have shaped that story for better or worse. This episode has been dedicated to and in service of Danny Miller, a man convicted of second-degree murder when he was 17, who served 10 years in prison who was released six years ago and who since then has been continually struggling in his search to find stable employment. We're going to give Danny the last word this hour. It's a thought for potential employers who might be reluctant to hire someone with a criminal record.
1: I just think that they should give, give everybody a chance. Just because somebody went to jail before don't mean they're not a hard worker or they're not, they not skilled in certain areas, you know. Cause you never know the circumstances that that send somebody to prison. Not saying that it's right, but we get put a certain predicament sometimes. And that shouldn't affect your work life. You know, how can you say rehabilitate someone and then you send them home and you, you just, you stop. So if you can't find a job and things like that, you're going to push somebody back into the street. You might push somebody back to selling drugs and and. and and just from selling drugs, you might get into a situation when it turned violent. So now, you know, and the whole time you probably just want to sell drugs to make money, to live. But just from selling drugs, it's a ripple effect. You end up creating an enemy one way or another. It damn violence. You see what I'm saying? So like, don't just look and say, well, you've been locked up for before. Just give people a chance.
0: Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. Our theme music comes to us from Wendell Patrick. You can listen back to this episode at wypr.org lifeinthebalance life in the balance. And you can reach us with your thoughts and questions at life in the balance at wypr.org. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening.